on the live stream. I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. as We look at verses 7 through 19. We just finished that great Reformation hymn. This is traditionally known as Reformation Sunday, that Sunday closest to the day the Reformation got rolling, if you will. When God raised up individuals, to call the church to repentance, to warn them uh, that they had not been following Christ, but had been following the things of this world. And we have here in Hebrews a similar warning against unbelief. And we're going to turn our attention to it today. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. This is God's word. Therefore, As the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, this is a sobering passage. And so we pray that we would indeed hear your voice and that you would send your spirit that we would not harden our hearts, that we would take hold of our confidence and hold fast to the end. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. That word, if, has bound up in those two little letters a whole lot of uncertainty and possibility. I mean, I think of that Rudyard Kipling poem that we all had to memorize in middle school. If you can keep your head when... All those about you are losing theirs and blaming on you, and if, and if, and if, and it goes, and then you'll be a man, my son. If you can do all these things, then, then you'll be a man. If you finish all of your vegetables, you get dessert. That if is holding, it's carrying a lot of water there. If she says yes, it's a big if. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of possibility in it. 
But when we see that word in Scripture, sometimes if can be downright frightening. You see here in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ. If, indeed, we hold our original confidence to the end. What are we to do with that if? What are we to make of this warning not to harden our hearts? What are we to do with this warning against unbelief? Well, we're going to take a look at it this morning. We're going to ask and try to answer three questions. What is this warning about? Who is this warning for? And how should we respond to this warning? So the first thing I want us to consider here is what this warning is all about. He quotes Psalm 95 that has that warning there and then reiterates it. Take care. And this this ought to perk us up. This ought to call our attention because we are often a very complacent people. I have a a car that I inherited from my wife's dad that has a cruise control that I can set and it just keeps me at the distance between my car and the other car. I used to, not, I used to have to like micromanage it, right? The old style cruise control and you'd come up on somebody real fast. You better be paying attention. I don't have to pay attention now. It beeps at me if I you know, drift. It beeps at me if I get too... It even breaks for me if I forget. And it's easy to get out there on the road... And get complacent. We do that in life. We do that with spiritual things. We just sort of get in the thick of it, going through the motions, barreling down the road of life, and we stop paying attention. And this warning ought to wake us up from our slumber. Psalm 95 is a poetic recounting of the rebellion that is uh, shared for us in Scripture in Numbers 13 and 14. Go back and read that later. And you find that it's the account of God bringing His people out of Egypt, out of slavery to Pharaoh, to Mount Sinai, where He descends in the cloud of glory and majesty and announces His word and His covenant with His people. And he brings them to the edge of the promised land and commands them to send spies out just to make sure that all that God had said about it was true. And it was. They come back with all kinds of goods. They have a a thing of grapes. What is it? A bow of grapes? I don't remember. A thing of grapes that is so big they have to carry it on a pole. I mean, forget this little stuff that you get at Food Lion or whatever that you can put in a plastic bag. They're carrying it on a pole. There's so many grapes on this thing. They're talking about just the bounty of the land, the animals, the waters, just the, the, the fruitfulness of the land. It is, as God said, flowing with milk and honey, and everybody's all excited until the spies say, but there are giants in the land. There are nations and armies, and they are vicious and cruel, and we are like grasshoppers before them. There's no way we can take this land. 
it's better if we just go back to Egypt. I mean, that, that is the point that they had gotten to. where They're like, you know what? Having seen how great this place is, having seen that all that God said about it was true, having taken stock of the wondrous inheritance that he's given us, we would rather go back to slavery in Egypt. We would rather go back hat in hand to the, the king whose army we just saw drown in the Red Sea and say, could we possibly build more pyramids for you? We'll be glad to do it without bricks, without straw. We'll take care of it all. Just can we come back and be enslaved to you again? And if not for Joshua and Caleb, the only two, the youngest two, if I remember correctly, spies of this troop, if not for them, that's the last word. But they they spoke up and they said, how can we ignore God's promises now? Everything that he has said, he has done. And he has brought us out with power. He has shown us his glory. He has given us his word and his promises. How can we, in disobedience, return back to what he just saved us out of? Let's go into the land. Our God is with us. But they rebelled. They didn't go. And they incurred the wrath and anger of God because they turned hard hearts towards his word and they didn't listen. You see this in verse 12, where it says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There are all kinds of voices out there leading us somewhere. The Holy Spirit says, the word of God comes. He sends his prophets and his apostles. He's given us his word. He sent his only son who declared the good news of the gospel to us. He attested to it himself with signs and wonders and distributed his Holy Spirit with gifts as his will dictated. God speaks with clarity and with power above the cacophony of all these worldly voices. And yet, God's people are still prone to harden their hearts to what God would say and be led by worldly things. They had all the outward benefits of being a part of God's people. They were delivered from slavery in Egypt. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw it collapse in again on Pharaoh's armies. They saw the glory of God descend on Mount Sinai with such power that the the, the assembly of God's people said, Moses, you go and you talk to God. We're not sure we can handle his greatness and glory. That's my paraphrase, but that's the gist of it. They were absolutely apoplectic with fear, having seen the majesty and the glory of God who spoke to them. You are my people. I brought you out of slavery. Here's my word. Follow me. Have no other gods before me. And he leads them to the shores of the promised land. And they come back with proof that everything God said about it was true. And they still, having participated in all of these things outwardly, having an outward part, the things of the assembly of God's people, did not guarantee that they had a believing heart. Religious activity doesn't protect you from falling 
into the things of this world. It doesn't protect you from falling away from the promises of God. And for a people prone to complacency, this warning ought to wake us up and make us wonder, are we too just along for the ride? Are we just going through the motions? Are we outwardly apart, but inwardly our hearts are far, far from the Lord? How do you know? How do you know if you're just along for the ride? How how can you protect yourself against it? Some have said you need to grow in your knowledge of who God is and what he's done. Increase your understanding of doctrine. Learn the catechism. Study the Bible. Read the commentaries. Learn the things so you know. That doctrine didn't protect the Pharisees from being far from the Lord. Others would say, it's about, it's about, where are you emotionally? Are you, are you feeling close to God? Are you enjoying the benefits of being a part of his people? Are you, are you stirred in such a way that you think that you can just have some confidence that, that yeah, I'm not just along for the ride. It's real. I feel like it's real. Of course, the God's people felt amazement and awe upon seeing God's glory descend on Mount Sinai. They felt fear and reverence and awe when they saw the, the, the glory of God and the thunder and the lightning. They, they had all the feels. It didn't protect them from a hardness of heart. We need to do better. Others will say, build into your life those holy habits that will bear the fruit of righteousness in your life. And you know then that you will enter the rest of God because you have been faithful in all the things you were called to do. You're in church. You're reading your Bible regularly. You're going to small group. Of course, These people had Moses. These people heard straight from the greatest prophet God's people had ever seen exactly what God wanted them to do. And they still found ways to build calves of gold and rebel against God's wisdom and calling. What are we to do then? What's the warning about? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This isn't a warning just about what you know in your head. This isn't a warning about just how you feel in your spirit. This isn't a a warning about what you do with your hands and your feet. This is a warning about who you are. The seat of your being, your heart, as the Bible calls it. What is the disposition of your heart towards the voice, towards the word, towards the promises, towards the person of the Lord? How do you know if you're not just along for the ride? 
Because it's not about all of these earthly measurements. Where are you in your heart with Christ? And that, that is a, an answer that I can't give you. I can't see into your heart. And sometimes our own sinful nature can so entangle us, we ourselves are blinded to who we really are, to where our heart has placed its love. And this warning, what is this warning about? This warning is about waking up. About stepping out of your complacency. About taking stock. Where are you with the Lord? And so it's important for us to ask, who is this warning for? Because so often that we think that the problem most pressing for the church to deal with is out there. Those sinners out there. Those wicked people out there. And yet, this is the second of six warnings in a sermon given not to the people out there, but to the Christians in the church. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart. When I was a teenager, I was given my first car. It was my grandmother's car. It was a 1977 Buick Electra. It was green. It had tail fins, vinyl roof, and a V8 that could pass anything, even on a hill, even as it burned through a quart of oil about every 300 miles. And I loved that car, and there will never be its equal. And I went through a very legalistic phase in high school where I was very, very, very sure to follow all the rules, especially the rules of the road, because I lost my license. My parents took it away for some time, and so I wanted to not have that happen again. And if I just followed all the rules, I knew that wouldn't happen again. That's another story. I'm not going to tell you that one. But I remember distinctly driving down Liberty Boulevard and... There's a police car there, and you're even more careful, right, when there's a police car right there with you. And I'm just going there right with him, looking at my speedometer, checking the speed, checking the speed limit sign, like we're good to go, but he's kind of going a little slower than the speed limit. I'm like, well, but I'm double-checking, and so I kind of sort of pass the police officer on Liberty Boulevard until we get to the stoplight, and we both stop. And he honks at me, rolls, I roll down my window, and he says, watch your speed in your vehicle, son. I've been frightened before, but that like, oh no, I might lose my license. I'm going to get a ticket. Oh no, I, but I want, and I wanted to protest. I was, I did. Some experimenting later, dad and I discovered that my speedometer was off by about five miles an hour. So I was, I was just like, police officer, what police officer? Hey, I'm going to pass you. Like it wasn't the outward conformity to the rules that was, I can, it couldn't help me at all until I recognized that there was something broken inside. This v- section here, verses 15 through 19, he's just explaining the history behind Psalm 95, behind Numbers 13 and 14, and he's asking a bunch of rhetorical questions. Who was it? Who was the warning for? Who heard it? 
and didn't heed it. What happened to them? Why was God provoked with them? Why were they so disobedient? And he concludes with this statement. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. They were disobedient. They rebelled. They died, scattered throughout the wilderness. They fought against God's will. They didn't listen to it. They decided to do their own thing and go their own way. There was even a point after they sort of experienced the temporal discipline of God where they're like, we're sorry, God, we'll go take the land of Canaan. We're not going to consult with you about whether or not that's a good idea. We're just going to go do it. And they were turned back with their tails between their legs. Why? Why were they left dead and scattered through the wilderness? Why were they unable to enter the rest? At the heart of their rebellion, at the heart of their sin, at the heart of their disobedience, even behind their deaths, was unbelief. That is what is at the root of all of these things. They didn't turn a believing heart towards the word of the Lord. God had all these things to say. God made all of these promises. God proved the veracity of his word again and again and again. But when they saw giants in the land, they thought to themselves, well, God can't deal with this. They didn't believe that the God who conquered the armies of the most powerful nation in the known world, they didn't believe that the God who spoke out of thunder and a lightning. They didn't believe that the God who brought water from the rock, they didn't believe that this God, that this God could conquer giants in the land. And it led them to rebel. It led them to sin. It led them to disobedience. And it led them to death. And they were all a part of the outward congregation of God's people. Just like you. Every professing Christian should regularly take time to examine their hearts. Where am I with the Lord? We have in the Lord's Supper a call. Examine yourselves. Don't come to the table presuming you deserve to be there. And as we examine our hearts, what do we find? We find that we need the Lord. We need His work. We need His power. We need His truth. We need His guidance. And when we turn hard hearts towards Him, we turn hard hearts towards the one source of life in this world afflicted with sin and misery and death. What happens when we reject the warning? What happens when we don't examine our hearts? What's the fruit of unbelief, practically in us. Perhaps we begin to develop a deeper concern for the counsel of others than for the counsel of God. God had said, go conquer the land, I'm with you. And 
The spies came back, and a vast majority of them said, nope, we have a better idea. Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. Let's do that. And they listened to that. How often do we seek out guidance from others that's really just affirmation of what we wanted to do anyway, and we don't ever consider what God is calling us to do, to be? What are the giants in the land for you that lead you to doubt God's promises are true? There are many things in this life that afflict us. Trials and tribulations of every kind. Illness. Fear. Loss. Hardship. And sometimes they loom large and they seem insurmountable to us. What are the giants in the land for you that keep you from believing that your God is able? He who defeated death. He who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, who commands the hosts of angels. Who is working to make his enemies and yours a footstool under his feet. How will he not keep all of his promises to you? What is cancer to the Lord who raises the dead? It doesn't make it easy. Don't hear me say that. What is it to the God who raises the dead? Does that giant cause you to harden your heart and turn away from the Lord? Sometimes we grow in a a grumbling and complaining disposition. Maybe we're groaning and complaining against our circumstances. Maybe we're groaning and complaining against the people who are around us and how they just don't get it. But ultimately, when we complain about our circumstances, when we grumble about the people around us, we're really just ultimately grumbling and complaining about God. Why have you put me here? Why have you given me these people to deal with? Why are these the burdens that I have to bear with? Oh God, if you only understood what I was going through, you would take these people away. You would take these circumstances away. And we get hardened against him because we see him as the source of our bitterness, of our hardship, of our trials. How can we then not, like the Israelites, grow to have a calloused attitude towards one another and towards God that leads us to want to return to slavery, to slavery to sin, slavery to the law, slavery to all sorts of earthly and worldly things? Because that's easier than humbling ourselves before the word of the living God. Sin would have us believe that that's the way for life. This is what it means to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That we would so believe the lies that sin tells us that we would turn a deaf ear to the Lord. And you can't keep doing that again and again and again and again and again and it not harden you. So what then? How shall we respond What do we do? It's important that we ask this because we can focus on the wrong response. Right? 
We can just deny that this is a problem, right? Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, I know somebody that really needs to hear this and deny that it's relevant to you at all. Or maybe, maybe even worse, something deep inside us will be pricked and we'll, we'll like, oh, and we'll just leave this place with a burst of spiritual energy and we're going to read our Bibles more and we're going to do better and we're going to follow all the rules and, we're, and, and we focus on the wrong response. Because if you've ever heard the, the fable, the tortoise and the hare, if you've ever heard the parable of the sower and the seeds, you know that a flurry of energy, a quick start, does not equal a good finish. Seed might spring up, but the sun can beat down on it. The weeds can choke it out. and There will be no harvest. So how should we respond? That's, that's the possibility held in this glorious and not frightening word, if. We share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. Let that sink in for just a minute. What is the Lord calling you to? Not to hold on to Christ, our confidence. Christ, our surety. Christ, who is our end. Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and our all in all. Christ, who gave everything for us that we might be called his people. Christ, who defeated death that we might live with him. Christ, who is making all his and our enemies a footstool for his feet, that we might live in peace and glory with him forever, without fear, without dread, without sorrow, without shame. And there is not a call here to a flurry of meaningless, outward, going through the motions, fake spiritual activity, there is a call in your heart to hold fast once again, afresh and anew, even as long as it's today, to Jesus. And to follow Him. And not to do that on your own, but to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. That none of you, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For us to exhort one another, to be reminded who Jesus is for us, what it is that he has done, how he is greater than Moses, and he will not let his people be snatched out of his hand, how he will not let us be given over to death, how he is able to bring us home, to be with him forever and ever and ever All that is asked of us is to hold fast to him, to that confidence, to Jesus. What might that look like? What does it look like to hold fast, to hold to our confidence, to exhort one another to that end? Maybe it looks like coming alongside one another 
and spurring one another on, as we will see later in the book of Hebrews, not just to good deeds. Be better. Try harder. But to love and the good deeds that flow from it. To point one another towards a renewed faith, to a confidence in who Jesus is, to remind and exhort one another. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He's the everlasting God, the kings of the, the end of the earth. He's not tired. He hasn't forgotten you. And he's able to bind up even the most brokenhearted. That's who Jesus is. A bruised reed. He will not break. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And he invites you to come to himself that you, he, that he may give you rest. To turn an unbelieving ear to that call is to harden your heart towards the one source of rest we have. Maybe it means that when we are struggling, we exhort one another to look to Jesus and to follow him in love and in faith. Maybe it looks like patience with one another because we start to see how we've had those days. Maybe it's today where we've heard God's voice and it's a hard word. Maybe he's revealed something to you about yourself that you just don't want to deal with. Maybe he's revealed somewhere he wants you to go that seems too hard. Maybe there's someone he wants you to love that seems unlovable. And it feels like the only choice you have is to go back to the old way. Maybe we need to be patient with one another. Say, no, how can I help you see Jesus and have confidence in him that he won't call you to something? He won't always also empower you to do. Maybe it means we can start being honest about our sin and our struggles because we know we're no different than the Israelites, that this warning wouldn't be given to us if we had all our stuff together. And we can stop putting on a face and stop putting on a facade, and we can start bringing people into our confidence and saying, encourage me, exhort me, I need a good word. Help me see how Jesus helps me through this thing. Because I, just, I can't see it. And I need not to deflect not to deny, not to blame, not to shift responsibility, but just to be honest about where I am right now. And, and maybe, maybe if you've ever come up to me or to somebody else and said, I just wish people in the church, this church, could just be more honest about their struggles. Well, you go first. Let's be that. Because we know that we can be that. Because everybody else, according to Scripture, is in the same place. Because we're not pointing one another. Well, you need to be more like TJ. You need to be more like other names that I will not embarrass you by calling out. You need to look to Jesus. You need to find your confidence in Him. You need to find your strength in Him. And you need to hold on to the end. So that's where we are with this warning. 
It's about holding fast to Jesus to the end. It's a warning for you. It's a warning for me. But it's also a promise. Let us hold fast to Christ. We share in Him. We share in His life, in His death, His resurrection, in His session at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. We share in Him. Let's hold fast to Him. Firm to the end. Because he who began a good work in you will see it completed in Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would take this warning and drive it deep into our hearts, that it would not just be a word that sparks a flurry of activity in us, that it would not be a word, Lord, that leads us to complacency or arrogance or self-confidence, Lord, but that it would bring us to the end of ourselves and lead us to Christ, our confidence, our Savior, our King, our end. Do that for His glory, that He might have a people. Do that for us today, that we might not harden our hearts. Do that to fulfill all of your promises that you've given us in your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.